Hi, I'm Peter Regert. This is Vocal Heroes, conversations with bright people for dark times. In part two, I'll be following up with Cassie Schwerner. In my work, we use this language very intentionally, the two pandemics. Not only the grief and loss that is felt in bodies of color coping with COVID, but also the everyday assault of the pandemic of racism and white supremacy. That's Cassie, Executive Director of Morningside Center for Teaching Social Responsibility, and niece of slain civil rights worker, Mickey Schwerner. June 21st, 1964, Neshoba County, Mississippi. There's a man waiting down in Mississippi, and he's waiting with a rifle in his hand. And he's looking down the road for an out-of-state car, and he thinks that he's fighting for his land. Yes, he thinks that he's fighting for his land. Three civil rights workers were arrested for speeding outside Meridian, Mississippi. James Cheney, a black 20-year-old from Meridian, was driving. The other two in the car were white civil rights workers from New York City, 24-year-old organizer Mickey Schwerner and 20-year-old volunteer Andrew Goodman. They were taken to the Meridian jail, never seen again until their bodies were discovered six weeks later. They had driven down from Oxford, Ohio, where they were part of a project called Freedom Summer. During part one of this episode, February 29th, 2020, we discussed the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, Mickey's legacy, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and some of the heroic voices. Toward the end of our time together, Steve made a prescient remark. When students used to ask me, well, what we should do now? We need a movement again. There's no real big social justice movement right now that you could lay your hand on. My hope is they can coalesce. During the spring and summer of 2020, Steve's wish for a new movement was upon us. A new urgency was brought to the struggle for civil rights and racial justice. With the murder by police of Breonna Taylor in her home on March 23, 2020, George Floyd lynched by police two months later, Jacob Blake shot by police seven times in the back three months after that, and many other people of color killed by police as well. That's what led to part two in this episode. I felt an urgency to discuss this new and dangerous moment with Cassie again, via Zoom on September 30th, 2020. Two friends in conversation about our American condition. He won't know the clothes that I'm wearing, and he doesn't know the name that I own. But his gun is large, and his hate is hard, and he knows I'm coming down the road. Yes, he knows I'm coming down the road. So much has happened since we spoke. It was February 29th. That's seven months. Wow. I would say there were three deaths that made me think we'd entered a new civil rights movement akin to the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Brianna Taylor was murdered in her house on March 23rd. Two months later, in Minneapolis, George Floyd was essentially lynched. Mm -hmm. And then three months later, Jacob Blake, 29 years old, was shot seven times in the back. Right. I thought that 
we were going to be entering this new period. And I wondered, maybe I'm being too sentimental about this. If I look back to the 50s and 60s, it wasn't an amazing transformation. It took years. Right. There weren't successes all along the way. A fight for justice never ends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wondered if you had thoughts about where we are in terms of all this that's gone on. First of all, watching that brutal lynching of George Floyd, but also learning about, as you say, Breonna Taylor, there was Amand Arbery, there was this streak of murders that all ignited this public outcry. I was very heartened. If you look at the history of the Black Freedom Movement, for lack of better term, Black liberation in this country, it began when that first ship was bringing back enslaved peoples from Africa. And it goes on till today, this afternoon, as we're speaking. So there's high points and low points within that struggle after the George Floyd murder. I really did feel like we were reaching this new crescendo, the height of that liberation movement. And I still, in some ways, believe that. I do think it has changed the conversation in some pretty profound ways. At least we're having the conversation. Even just talking to a good friend of mine who's Black, he was saying, Cassie, for you and me, this is the moment we've been living for. This is the moment that we are going to get to be active in this movement again. There was that sense that this is the moment we've been waiting for, and it's not just defined by a few-month period. I think about what Reverend Barber in North Carolina talks about in terms of that third reconstruction that we're really in this movement that could be truly multiracial, which is different than in the 60s and 50s, where white people had a notion that they were saving Blacks, when in fact, white people were really trying to save their own souls from the pandemic of racism. There might be the possibility of something new right now, which would be white people taking a backseat and white people really looking deeply at the institutions that we have created where racism permeates throughout. I do think there's a moment of optimism here, but I also have some pessimism. I'm reminded that there's not a goal line. There's a goal, but there's no goal line. It's going to keep moving. For example, when Mickey and James Cheney and Goodman were found, a year later, the Voting Rights Act was passed, which is extraordinary. And then in 2013, the court voted it down with regards to this decision to basically strip the Voting Rights Act. It was Roberts who wrote the decision. Roberts had said, our country has changed. Well, a country is always changing. In the decision, it said, while any racial discrimination in voting is too much, Congress must ensure that the legislation it passes to remedy that problem speaks to current conditions. But current conditions are never, there's no stasis. The opinion that Justice Roberts wrote is so misunderstanding of human nature. It's incomprehensible to me. Human nature is always in flux. Just when you think, we're making a breakthrough. Something insane happens. 
it's a battle. The cliche is two steps forward, one step back. But we've taken a lot of steps back being in the midst of this dystopian universe we're living in. It seems as an outsider, I might be inclined to go to those marches. I'm not on the streets anymore. I'm 73. So going out is life threatening. And I don't mean from stray bullets. I mean, in the pandemic, I participated in the 60s, but it was so small. The marches seem to be multi-ethnic now. Yes. It seems to be different. I think in the original idea of the Voting Rights Act was largely around nine states Mm -hmm. because of voter suppression. But what we've seen is voter suppression could be anywhere. Everywhere. In the North, in the West, doesn't matter. Right. That's what made me say, I wonder if I'm being sentimental, even though I want to be enthusiastic, because I think something exciting is happening. Let me see if I can share a few of my thoughts on where I am worried. One is all of a sudden this real cause for some optimism. People were in the streets so quickly. Protests were all over the world, not just the country. And the solidarity with Black Americans from Palestine, Europe, and Paris, and everywhere, it was really powerful. But so quickly, this president and his cronies were able to change the conversation from police brutality to police brutality and the protests as a moral equivalent. And both are bad. And if you watch the debate last night, he didn't miss an opportunity to talk about the radical and the socialist left painting some ridiculous caricature of the people who are in these protests right now. So one is that pivot has been fairly successful and very upsetting because we've seen the national conversation switch. But the other piece that I've been frustrated about is that what is exciting to me is if there's a very broad definition of this Black freedom movement And that would really have to look at all aspects of our culture and society and politics, right? If we only focus on police brutality, and I don't think the protesters are only focused on that, but I want to also call the attention to the myriad of institutions that are connected to white supremacy and the disenfranchisement of African-American, Black, as well as other people of color. There were white people engaged in the civil rights, well, it wasn't even called the civil rights movement. My parents were involved in the 30s. It all seemed to go hand in hand, union organizing and all that other stuff. I think you're about 20 years younger than me. And your dad is about 10 years old than you, I think. Yeah. So he was coming out of anti-lynching movements, anti-racist movements. Right, right, right. So here's an amazing fact. Between January 1st of this year and August 31st of this year, 771 people have been killed by police. That's a lot of killing by police. Yeah, that's a huge number. That's a huge number. 164 African-American men and women, which represents about 21% of that 771. But then you have to throw in Latin Americans, Mm -hmm. Asian Americans. Indigenous Americans, but it seems in the course of these seven months, this is a weekly phenomena. That was shocking to me. Certainly, the Black community 
they're noticing one person a week, if not more. I'm only assuming. Mm -hmm. I saw a writer or maybe a reporter, I can't remember. Jason Johnson is who I was trying to remember, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University. And it was after the jury verdict came out about Breonna Taylor. He was so emotional. And he said, I promised myself I wouldn't get emotional. He just was getting lost in the fact that we're not even safe in our own home. Remember when we were talking, when when they were looking for your uncle and Cheney and Goodman, they found eight or nine other bodies yeah. along the way. And my dad always says it wasn't that nobody knew they were missing. Their mothers knew they were missing. Their family members, their teachers, ministers, but the country was not alerted to them missing. I don't know who all the 165 African-American men and women were. And it's not that I'm not interested in this situation. There are people who know all these names, certainly more than a half a dozen. The say their names aspect of this is really a powerful part of it. People's voices have been stilled. We're talking about lost voices. Yeah. In my work, a nonprofit organization that does training with teachers around how to connect and build community with students, among other things. We've done that for 40 years, but this year, obviously, we have a new focus in that work because of what's going on with COVID. It's enormous. We're working with a school that lost 29 parents. And of course, that is an all Latino school in the South Bronx. 29 parents in one small school is a huge number. So when we talk about COVID and the pandemic, we're also talking about, and we use this language very intentionally, the two pandemics. Not only are teachers and students and school staff coping with the grief and loss of the actual COVID pandemic. So for some of us, it's been very uplifting to see this movement, but for so many of my colleagues of color and staff of color in schools and students of color, it's also been an incredibly painful time. Not that it hasn't been painful to us as white people, but the grief and loss that is felt in bodies of color is just so profoundly different than the grief and loss felt by us as white people. There is something different about the everyday assault and whether that happens in just a tiny way, what we might call a microaggression, where a white person says something that is dehumanizing, to having to watch that man's knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes is a very public lynching. Eight minutes is a long time. The amount of grief experienced in watching that is just profoundly different if your body could have been that body. If your son or your daughter could have been that same person. The George Floyd lynching, I agree that's what it is. There was no tree around, but what was happening to his neck was the equivalent. What I found extraordinary about that picture was the look on the face right. of the policeman was as bored as if he were reading the back of a cereal box and his left hand was in his pocket. He was as casual as casual can be. That's what resurrected the movement part of this freedom movement, as you're calling it, at least to me, maybe. That's why I was saying it seemed like we entered this 
new time earlier, but that was May, June, July, August, September. We're about to enter October 1st. We've lost 200,000 going on 210,000 people out of the willful lying of the president. They knew what COVID was. Everybody is basically under house arrest now. If you're going to go out traveling, you've got to mask up, even though we know a lot of people don't, social distancing, washing your hands, etc. My point is you have to be aware of everybody around you. But obviously, you want to try and have people walk in your shoes in a certain way. Tell me if this is a metaphor. That's far-fetched. But maybe people as a minority might say, that's kind of where we are. You have to be aware every single day. You know what I'm getting at? Yes, absolutely. The pandemic of racism and white supremacy. I had a friend, she was working on her PhD and she would say she does not have the luxury as a black woman of answering the door in her pajamas the way I might without thinking anything about it. She'd put on lipstick before she answered the door because she knew there was going to be a judgment about her just because of her physical being. And so that's one thing, but the level of having to think and work hard for every second of the day to modulate and to be prepared for some sort of assault, whether it's physical or verbal. Or a look. Or a look, whatever it is. But to have to do that for an entire life, there are deep health consequences, mental health as well as physical. Absolutely. I've been reading articles about the impact of COVID at this time, this stress, which is corollary to the stress of being an African-American in America forever in America. We're always moving forward, we're moving back. But the idea that it's a constant thing, black men have to have conversations with their sons. There's not a black man in this country who doesn't have an experience or a story to tell, as well as many Latinx men, as well as people of color, women of color. Then there's LGBTQ. When you go deep into that, black trans women, the murder rate is you know, truly astonishing. I do want to go back to something that you said when we were talking about the lynching or murder of George Floyd and the casualness of that knee on the neck. I don't know if you saw this comedian, Dave Chappelle, did a really profound segment. I guess you could call it comedy, although it was profound and not you know, necessarily funny, but he called it eight minutes and 46 seconds, which is the time. And I really encourage you to watch it if you haven't. And he talks about being in an earthquake in California. I forget the number, but it was like a 20 second, maybe it was a minute, but it was like the most terrifying thing of his life to be in an earthquake. And 30 seconds is an eternity when you're in an earthquake, time stops. And he talks about it and then talks about taking that, whatever it was, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, and flash forwarding to eight minutes and 46 seconds. So the notion of sitting there and the trauma and just the mental effect of watching another human being suffer and be murdered, life snuffed out for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's what I was getting at. We could actually, as fellow human beings, we could say, to somebody who's struggling with this idea, not that you and I are perfect, nobody's perfect, everybody's got human qualities, 
black, white, I don't care who. But to be able to say to somebody, do you feel under stress because of COVID? Everything's on the line now. They may have lost their job. They may have lost their health care. There are a lot of things going on that we're not even aware of because the market keeps hanging around and nobody seems to be talking about the unemployed. And you can say to somebody, you feel stressed, don't you? And of course, the answer is yes, because that's what the hospitals are reporting now. They're getting a lot of people who are completely under stress, they're exhausted. And you could say, well, I think there's a lot of people in the African-American community who would say, that's what the day is like. If I leave the house, I'm on guard. Mm. There was a documentary about the Holocaust that won an Academy Award, I'm going to say 15 years ago. The producer and director asked permission for one of the interviewees who survived Auschwitz if they could come up and accept the award. And it was a woman in her 70s, maybe 80s. And she was quite eloquent. And she thanked the audience for paying attention to this issue. What we know within the Jewish community, the whole idea of never forgetting. And at the end, she said, I wish for you boredom. Mm -hmm. Because when we were in those camps, there was no such thing as boredom. And in this era, we're all in COVID. Being bored is a luxury. A luxury. And that's the same for people of color in our country and everybody who's going through possible deportation because they have an accent. I mean, I don't know if hope is the right word, but the culture generally seems to be hearing it in a different way, I hope. I think you're right. And then there's one other thing that happened in this time period that is worth noting, Peter. And it's something I talk to teachers about in my work especially because the overwhelming majority of teachers are white women. One of the things that I think is true in general of white people, especially for white women, it's very easy for us to look at the lynching of George Floyd and look at those cops, whether it was the knee on the neck and the hand in the pocket or the other guys who just, you know, seemed to be looking around like this was a routine thing. Two of them had their knees on his back and his legs. Yeah. It's very easy as a white woman, especially in New York, where we think we're, you know, progressive, to say, that's not me, that's racism, and that's not me. And then we had this other amazing moment with this woman in Central Park named Amy Cooper. And her reaction to this black birder who was minding his own business birding in the park. One of the things that I think this moment allows for or calls for is at the same time we're protesting and we're outraged by the police brutality, that we not forget about the racism of a lot of institutions beyond cops, like schools. The institutionalized racism of public education is, we could do many hours on that topic alone. But the other piece of that is some of the mindset that allows Amy Cooper, I'm sure she did not see herself as a racist. That's another piece that I also like to draw some attention to. It's the same way that New York during the 60s was able to say, we're not Mississippi and be very proud of New York not being Mississippi. And yet 
the institutions in New York were also racist, a different kind of racism. It really raises an interesting question because a lot of people, and I don't know if it's limited to Republicans only, I'm sure Democrats too, very often you'll hear somebody in a conversation or a debate about where we are with Trump. Do you think he's a racist or are you saying I'm a racist? And that's not really of any value because it doesn't matter what I think. Right. Because even about myself, there are things that I could do unconsciously that I'm obtuse about. But I think that it's such a complicated issue. I guess what I'm saying is the conversation seems to have cracked open in a slightly different way. Yes. Slightly different. With the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, the literary world is just beginning to crack their doors open and realize there are voices they're important too, that they have something to say. I guess it goes back to what led me to talk to you and your dad originally. I know for your father, he and Rita and Mickey and their friends coming out of, was it Antioch? Mm -hmm. Well, that's where my dad and mom met. As I understand it, the 50s, 60s part of the movement. But then there's my parents' generation. You talked about your father's parents. This has certainly been going on. It's just how it goes on in a different way. And that's what made me question, am I being sentimental? But I do think, at least I hope, that first of all, we have to get through the election Mm -hmm. because we're going to learn a lot then. It's not like the Black Lives Matter movement has disappeared. A lot of it's been co-opted by these right-wing fanatics who are joining these marches, and they're the ones breaking windows and starting fires. And of course, then the Black Lives Matter movement gets blamed for it. I see what you're saying, Peter. There's something important about it. I don't know if I would call it sentimental. It's just a word I use because I I was wondering if something really was happening or I'm romanticizing this because I want it to happen. I think something has happened. I think there has been a culture shift. Even having Kamala Harris as the VP, a lot of Black women did some very profound organizing and really said there will not be two white people, a man and a woman, because Biden said early on he was going to name a woman. There was a lot of organizing, both behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, to really say this is the moment that we need to do this. I don't want to question Joe Biden and the incentive, and she is obviously more than qualified. I'm not suggesting she's not, but I can't believe that this post-George Floyd moment that our country is in was not part of the decision to put her on the ticket. I think you're right. I think that also Representative James Clyburn, remember, the press had anointed Sanders, even though he lost by one vote in Iowa and barely won in Vermont, they were ready to say it's a done deal. Sanders went off to, was it uh, Nevada and won there? I think Clyburn said to Joe Biden in so many words, do you want this? Because this is a fight, I think, that's my instinct, that James Clyburn said, and I'm putting words in his mouth, if a self-described Democratic socialist gets nominated, he'll be turned into a communist before he can say thanks for the nomination. Because that's clearly who Trump wanted to run against. 
So I agree with you. I think the African-American community gave him the nomination. I do think there was a culture shift that has happened in these few months. And then the question in my mind is, where do we go as a country with that? How deep does it go? Is it a token thing where we might appoint certain folks that we wouldn't have otherwise or have an MC for the Emmys that we might not have otherwise or whatever it is? Or is this a moment of real reckoning where we're going to actually put things like reparations or equal education or thinking about a different way to police or think about safety in a different way than we have? Any of those things actually on the table? I'd like to believe this is a reckoning. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's always pushback on anything. That's what offended me about Romney, which was selling this Republican idea, which they've been selling for 50 years, if not longer, that this is a center-right country. It's actually maybe center-left, if you want to give it a definition. And the truth of the matter is the Republican Party has gone so far right that the middle looks left. These are not radical ideas that people should have an education. Trump calling Biden a socialist is so patently absurd. I can pay the devil his due. He's a genius at doing this. And of course, his success depends on everybody who supports him. So going along with that, that's your point, I think, is that that party has gone so far right that it's easy to paint somebody like a Joe Biden as a leftist. Never mind socialist, a leftist. That's where it gets crazy. In terms of politics, the middle is where the miracle is because people think they're in the middle. They may describe themselves this way, that way, or the other, but generally they want a roof over their heads. They want to be able to eat. They want their kids to get an education. These are not far left ideas. No, no. People want health care. They want social security. They want to be able to retire. In our conversation, the discussion about your uncle and that extraordinary event was part of many extraordinary events. And now a time has gone by. I mean, this year, John Lewis died, Reverend Joseph Lowry died, Reverend C.T. Vivian died, Elijah Cummings died. A lot of the men and women from the 50s and 60s, they're gone. And there really is this new generation that has to pick up the standard. And I guess what we're both saying is, and that was the initial question, these challenges never end. It's not like if Biden wins the election, everything's groovy. There's so much work to do. You have to somehow reenact the Voting Rights Act. Clearly, in the last seven years, we've seen that that's just led to complete voter suppression all over. Massive backsliding. Massive. And it's time for Washington, D.C. to get statehood. It's time for Puerto Rico to say, we got to be included here. You can't come down and have the president throwing paper towels at us. And this 18th century idea of the electoral college, this is where we are. There's a lot of work to do. It's a lot of work to do, but it, there was a lot of work to do when Mickey went down to Mississippi with Rita. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of work to do when Jackie Robinson tried to play baseball. The Scottsboro Boys in the 30s, Rosa Parks in the 50s. It's not a new thing. That's right. My dad talks about this notion of racism on a scale of one to 10. I don't know if he used this when we were talking that day, 
but he talks about the scale of one to 10 of racism and that the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s maybe brought us to a three or at best a four. But we're at a four. In John Lewis's terms, don't say nothing was changed if you haven't walked in my shoes. And that is true. A lot changed, but we're still at four. Maybe, you know, Kamala Harris will be our first Black woman president. We had a first Black president. There will be things that create some change, but that will bring us to a five or a six, right? We still have a long road ahead of us. It shouldn't be exhausting to figure out how you're going to get through your day. What this part of the conversation has made in juxtaposition to our discussion about Mickey and Rita and Janie and Goodman and that whole period. I went back to realize that a year after they found your uncle was this Voting Rights Act. In terms of what we've just been talking about, in terms of time, that is almost the speed of light. However, 48 years later, the Supreme Court said, eh, you know, we're good. The country's different. We're changed. And again, to go back to the quote, which blows my mind, the remedy of the problem should speak to current conditions. Okay, those are your words. So remedy it. Speak to the current conditions. Anyway, thanks for doing this. It's really a treat. Seven months, so much has happened. Yeah. When I realized that that's how long this is, and so much has happened. Oh, so much has happened. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That was a body blow hearing that news. That woman was fighting cancer and holding on for us as long as she possibly could. But I don't know what's going to happen with that world because the Supreme Court is now God only knows. So anyway. All right. Peter, wonderful to talk to you. I look forward to when we can come to the cave and visit. Yeah. But won't be anytime soon. The New York City numbers, did you see that? We're at 3.5 in New York City. Wow. We're going to have to get through this winter, first of all. I don't think this is changing so fast. There are spikes going up in New York. In the city. That's because of these Hasidim and uh, these neighborhoods. Uh, That's terrible. But the numbers changed drastically very recently. And Cuomo says it is your job, mayors of New York, you know, read de Blasio, to bring law enforcement to the communities where they're not wearing masks. That's your job. Wearing a mask is not a good idea. It is the law. So we'll see. There are conversations with all these religious leaders. Well, I see no particular change yet. Whatever talk there is of a vaccine, that's months away. And even then, it takes a while because enough people have to be given the vaccine. There are either people who think vaccines are a government plot or people who are saying anything Donald Trump approves, I don't think he's corrupted the CDC so terribly. So. Right. Let's hope he's not the one overseeing the vaccine. Let's hope. Anyway, lots of love to you, to the kids. All right. Give my love to Cornelia. I will. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Around the middle of November 2020, six weeks after Cassie and I said our goodbyes, I got my first episode on HBO's Succession. My scenes were with James Cromwell, and as actors do while waiting for the cameras to get ready, we often get to talking. James asked what I was working on, and I mentioned the podcast. He was curious with whom I had spoken, and when I got to the Schwerners, he immediately said he went to high school with Mickey. 
James's recollection highlights the interconnectedness that life brings to us all. He also talked about going down south in 1963 with an integrated company called the Free Southern Theater, and one of the members in the Mississippi audience was Fannie Lou Hamer, a woman Steve Schwerner held in the highest esteem. One of the great people in American history is Fannie Lou Hamer, who uh, was a sharecropper and became a counter, and then she went to register to vote, and the head of the plantation said, you have to go back and withdraw your application. She said, I didn't register for you, I registered for me. And he fired her, and she and her husband were thrown off the plantation. She became by far the oldest organizer in SNCC and was one of the great human beings that I've ever met. James Cromwell and I spoke via Zoom on December 1st, 2020. Did you know Mickey Schwerner? We went to the same high school in Pelham, New York, same class in school. His locker was next to mine. We were on the football team. I wasn't a particularly good football player. <laughs> I was beginning nascently to develop a politic. And my father had seen the column in the New York Times that there was a theater that was going to tour the South and they were looking for people. And I auditioned and I got the job I was in and directed Waiting for Gatto. And we toured Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia. What was the company's name? Free Southern Theater. The year before, it had been very successful, and SNCC thought it was valuable. Went to Mississippi. I was just oblivious. I wouldn't have known if I'd walked into a hornet's nest. I was gobsmacked. Every day, there was so much violence. The breathtaking violence that existed in Mississippi and Alabama, the whole South. So obviously, a, an integrated cast, which oh, yeah. already would have been threatening. Oh, without a doubt. We knew that they were monitoring us where we wow. were, six or seven of us in this uh, white rented panel van. We had all the props and everything in there. And then we had a CB radio and we would hear them talk about us. They referred to us as the chickens and they were the foxes. They were sending a message. You are not coming down here. Well, to tell you how slow I was, I hand out flyers and Soon I see five or six huge white guys, and they're chasing me down the street, running down the middle of the street, trying to get away. Of course, once they see the address, they know where it is, and that therefore I'm not from the South, and therefore I'm an agitator from the North. We went to Indianola, Mississippi. They had an organization called the Black Panthers, local Black people, and they were armed because they thought that they probably were going to try to bomb the church where we were performing. Were they associated with the Panthers? They were their own group. They'd just taken the name because they rather liked oh, it. I... And these people had hardly ever seen a movie, I wouldn't imagine. Certainly not a play. Waiting for Gatto, of course, is some of the most abstract language that you can do in the theater. This was the second time I directed, and I still had not figured out what the fuck is this play about? Which part did you play? I always played Pazzo. If you know the dynamic, it's true for any production. But in the South, when you have a white guy playing Pazzo and a black guy playing Lucky, you have a dynamic right away that is understandable. My relationship with Lucky, it's universal since the beginning of time, almost, the relationship between the master and the slave. But it took the minister of the theater who came up to me after a run-through, and he said to me, 
Pazzo is as tied to Lucky as Lucky is tied to Pazzo. That's very wise because he understands that's exactly the dynamic in that world during Jim Crow. Oh, without a doubt. To ask people what sense they were making of this play. I had a colloquy afterwards. I would always ask the question, did you think that Gatto was coming? And a woman in the back raised her hand, and she had a black glove on because this was culture. But she was wearing her funeral gloves because her white gloves she wore to special occasions like weddings. And she raised her hand and I said, so did you think Gatto was coming? And she looked right at him and said, no, so definite. I thought, wow. So why didn't you think Gatto was coming? She said, I looked in the program and his name wasn't listed. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And I would have liked to have written that to Beckett. It's a giveaway. <laughs> if you think there's any tension that Godot will show up, it doesn't happen. <laughs> they risked being firebombed in the theater or shot coming out. They risked their lives. That was the reason that John O'Neill and Gil Moses started that theater. Once you have your civil right to vote, you next should realize that your voice counts for something in the world, and you should be able to express it. And that's why you go to the theater, to see yourself, to have the, what it is that you're going to express about the conditions as they are. And they were always waiting. As I've been doing these conversations, it really is about the voice. It takes courage. You don't have to be heroic, but to hear your story about Fannie Lou Hamer, you're certainly heroic if you're growing up a sharecropper in Mississippi. That's about as heroic as it gets. Fannie Lou Hamer came to the performance. actually. She stood up, said to the group of people assembled to watch Waiting for Gatto, probably had 100 people in there. She turned around and she said, I want you to listen to this play because we're not like those two guys. We're not waiting for anyone to give us anything. We're taking what we need. That's what this is all about. Don't call me the brave one going. No, don't pin a medal to my name. Or even if there was any choice to just the same. I'd be going down just the same. As I complete my remarks for this episode, it is a year exactly since Steve Cassie and I first met in person on February 29, 2020. We're about to surpass over 525,000 COVID deaths. Three vaccines have been developed to fight the pandemic. Black Lives Matter has become a movement echoing in power the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. The backlash then was vicious and today echoes that intensity. Joe Biden became president and Kamala Harris, a woman of color, because that matters too, was elected vice president. To this day, the 45th president has yet to concede that he lost the election. This brings to an end the first season of Peter Riegert's Vocal Heroes, and all of us who put this together are moved and flattered that you chose to spend some time listening to these amazing voices. We look forward to a second season. All the best for your safety and a future of hope and achievement. Oh, it's not for the glory that I'm leaving. It's not trouble that I'm looking for. But there's lots of good work that's a-calling me down. And the waiting won't do no more. No, the waiting won't do are greatly indebted to the generosity of Megan Lee Oaks, 
for granting permission to use her father Phil Oakes's song Going Down to Mississippi. Vocal Heroes is brought to you by Two Tequila Productions. Lila Newman is our editor and audio producer. Cornelia Reed is the producer and came up with the title Vocal Heroes. Sound recording is by Mark Solomon. Mary Edith Burrell is creative consultant. Derek Burroughs built our website, vocalheroes.com. Thanks to Andy Kupachevsky and Amygdala Music for the theme. Going Down to Mississippi, performed by Phil Oaks, written by Phil Oaks, at Almo Music Corporation on behalf of Barricade Music Incorporated. The video of George Floyd was taken by Daniela Frazier. Our special thanks to Leslie Rossman, James Frizee, Robin Erdang, and Freya Reed. For more, visit VocalHeroes.com. I'm Peter Riegert. Thanks for listening.